please note that this series of podcasts was written and recorded prior to the events of July 7, 2021. These podcasts are focused on how we arrived at the current crisis. But we would be remiss to not make note that Jovenel Moise was assassinated in the early hours of July 7. In the coming days, as we know more, we hope to release further podcasts with more information. Join us in praying for our friends in Haiti, for the security situation in the country, and for the family of Jovenel Moise. My name is Dr. Tram Jones, and since 2019, my wife and I have been living in Haiti. This is the story of our life there and the patients we've seen. Haiti is currently in a crisis. That sentence has been spoken many times in the last 35 years, and it leads to something I would term Haiti fatigue. I mentioned the crisis to Americans, and their first response is, Haiti is always chaotic. We, as Americans, or perhaps as people in general, only have so much brain space. How many little facts can we remember for each of the 195-odd countries of the world? One, maybe two, Argentina, inflation, Peru, Machu Picchu, Italy, pizza. And with Haiti, sadly, it is chaos. And I'm not doing this podcast to ask anyone to know the layers and layers of depth to each country. That's just not possible. With the same token, I'm not going to pretend to be someone who understands any country other than the U.S. and to a small extent Haiti. To me, it is enough to know, really know, that each of these countries is much deeper than the single soundbite or snippet. And so as I said, Haiti right now is in crisis. This is the most serious impasse that Haiti has faced in the last 35 years. And I know that sounds dramatic, especially for a country that has had six coup d'etats, a devastating earthquake, and a 15-year United Nations mission, all since 1986. And let's remember that I've only lived in Haiti for 18 months, but I have talked to dozens and dozens of Haitians that both live in Haiti and live abroad. To a man, every single person has said that this is the worst the country has ever been. And so I'm going to attempt to walk through how we got here. Again, I don't think every person listening needs to know the history of Haiti and its intricacies unless you work here. But we should care what happens to one of our closest neighboring countries, 600 miles off the coast of the United States. I want to tell this story over three podcast episodes. I'm going to release them all on the same day so that we don't have three weeks of sadness. If you prefer to listen to Daily Lives About Haiti, feel free to skip these. But if you're down to hear a little more background, listen on. In the first episode, we are going to introduce how gangs started in Haiti. As we move into episode two, we'll start to talk about the weakening of the Haitian government. And in the last episode, I am going to give a flavor of life in Haiti today. As I said, in this first episode, we're going to set the scene for how gangs arose in Haiti. We are going to quickly go over the years that led up to this. And I want to make two points. First, while the French names can be challenging, you mainly only need to know three people for this part of the story. Papa Doc, Baby Doc, and Jean-Bertrand Aristide. Now, Papa Doc and Baby Doc are obviously nicknames, so at times we'll refer to them by their family name, Duvalier. The second point I want to make is that history is notoriously difficult in these instances. There are books and articles about these characters, but they generally come from one angle or another. There's nothing unbiased about them. I've tried to read UN reports, news articles, and histories to get an idea. And then there's word on the street, which obviously gives you a flavor for what life was like at that time. Getting that feel is very important, but obviously everyone has a viewpoint. 
Let me just say that I am not against any of the characters I will talk about. I'm simply telling it as I have researched it. So without further ado, let's get to the story. To understand recent Haitian history, we must start with the Duvaliers. Starting in the 1950s, Francois Duvalier, nicknamed Papa Doc, became the dictator for Haiti. From the 50s all the way to 1986, Papa Doc, and after his death, his son, nicknamed Baby Doc, ran the country as a personal autocracy, or rather a kleptocracy. And when I say kleptocracy, I mean a country built around the purpose to make the dictator wealthier. They formed a personal police force called the Tonton Makuts, who ruthlessly eliminated any opposition. The U.S. went back and forth in our support of the Duvaliers, mostly despising but tolerating the regime, given that they were against communism. The Duvaliers enriched themselves by stealing at least $300 million from the country. However, in 1985 and 86, dissent started to rise and finally broke out in full force that even the Tonton Makut could not contain. One of the leaders of the opposition was a Catholic priest, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, who led a church in a poor area of Port-au-Prince. Aristide is undoubtedly a complicated figure. What we know is that he is a brilliant man. He speaks eight different languages, holds a master's degree from the University of Montreal, and a PhD from the University of South Africa. During the Duvalier dictatorship, he had argued against the regime and the political structure of his own Catholic church in Haiti. His dissent earned him at least four assassination attempts. He narrowly escaped execution and a massacre at his church when the Tonton Makuts entered the sanctuary, killing 13 people and wounding 70-something. As he became more outspoken against Duvalier and the church, he was eventually expelled from his priestly order. As dissent continued to crash down, finally, in 1986, Baby Doc, faced with massive protests, left the country, clearing out Haiti's entire treasury and transferring them to his own accounts before boarding a plane for exile in Paris, France. After some chaos following these events, the country's first democratic elections were held and the Catholic priest, Aristide, was elected. He started to build schools and add social programs. Crucially, and what would turn out to be very dangerously, he attempted to rein in the military, which was still very much supporting Duvalier. In response, the military attempted a coup, which was thwarted. Eight months later, they tried again, and this time they stormed the National Palace and captured Aristide. U.S., Venezuelan, and French ambassadors negotiated with the military to spare Aristide's life and then evacuated him from the country. What followed was the U.S. and other countries putting sanctions on essentially all goods other than medicine and food. The pressure was ratcheted up and up until three years later, a military coalition led by the United States brought 20,000 troops to put Aristide back in power. After return, Aristide disbanded the Haitian military permanently as a way to prevent the increasingly constant string of military coup d'etats. This would eliminate the risk of a coup, but would forever eliminate the ability of the state to suppress armed opposition. Aristide went out of office for five years, but was elected again in 2000. At this point, I'm going to say that this becomes something of an eye of the beholder question. The truth may lie somewhere in between these stories, so take it with a grain of salt from a total outsider. Here is largely the story. The United States, particularly President Bush, was mostly against Aristide at this time. His stances were far left and ran counter to U.S. policy in the country. Thus, from the moment Aristide took office, the U.S. cut off aid to the country, something that ground the economy to a halt. Now, from my reading, and truth is a very murky thing in Haitian politics, this is where things started to go off the rails. As an opposition to Aristide started to grow among some of the wealthier classes in Haiti, Aristide turned to his supporters. 
His primary base of support was found in the urban slums, and he started to arm them. He started to take out his enemies. Slowly, slowly, this started to get out of control. Groups of neighborhood men, which had always existed, but never with guns, started to find themselves with power. In opposition to these groups, businessmen started to arm gangs to protect their property. Scores were settled. Murders rose precipitously. With armed gangs came many problems. Quickly, an armed man realizes that a gun can be used to make money. Gangs learn that they can, quote, ask for any small business to pay protection money. As we all know, protection money is a euphemism for pay me or I will burn your business down. This meant that slowly territories for armed groups started to develop. It also became very obvious that if you had a gun, you could hold someone up for money, or even better yet, kidnap them and hold them for ransom. All of these violent crimes began to spring up. While coups and revolutions had always been a part of Haiti's story, these had been solitary events that happened in a specific area, for example, the National Palace. However, now, guns had become part of Haitian society, and everyone was at risk. Aristide's gangs, over whom he had only moderate control, started to become slotted into the command structure of the government, driving government vehicles and becoming attached to local police departments. And crime started to spiral out of control as Aristide found that he did not have as much oversight over the gangs as he had hoped. The economy was in a freefall. In this position, wide-scale protests began throughout Port-au-Prince. At the same time, a murder in a northern city sparked off an armed revolt against the government. From all indications, it seems that this uprising was outfitted by the United States. This revolt started to gather men from the disbanded Haitian military and disaffected gang members and swept down on the capital, Port-au-Prince. With this group closing in and Aristide's own forces melting away, a U.S. military plane landed in Port-au-Prince. It depends on who you ask, but it seems that Aristide was told that he would be killed by the Revolutionary Army if he did not board the plane and leave for exile. Your lens on Aristide is going to depend on your position. I find that the views on Aristide are broken really into thirds. One third of people love him. One third of people loved the early Aristide but think he turned wicked. And one third of people were against him from the start. I talked with one of my friends and he said that Aristide's problem was that he created hatred. And to me, an outsider, this is so difficult to process. You read Aristide's life and you realize that he had many reasons to be angry. And then I compared him to Nelson Mandela. There were similarities between apartheid South Africa and Duvalier Haiti. There were large swaths of the population that were oppressed. Mandela himself spent 27 years imprisoned on Robben Island. The genius of Mandela was his response to this. Once he had power, once he had been elected, he did not immediately turn on his enemies. He called for truth and reconciliation committees so that the truth could be spoken, but there was rarely retribution. And again, this is a hard thing. Aristide and Mandela had legitimate reasons for retribution. When you hear their stories, you almost want it in your bones, but that way lies chaos. Even early in his career, there was anger in Aristide's discourse. In a famous speech, he endorsed the idea of necklacing former Duvalier thugs, a practice where you put a tire around someone's neck, douse them with gas, and set it ablaze. Now, to an American, this sounds barbaric, but let us be clear that this is not an uncommon practice in Haiti. I know this because the corpses have been close to our house. Usually, it's a response to crime or evil when there is no working legal system. This process is endorsed by the vast, and I'm going to say 95%, of the population, at least among the poor and middle classes. And so, when Aristide says this after multiple assassination attempts and coup attempts, with no legitimate legal recourse, you almost can understand it. And yet, it's fair to say that this is not a recipe for reconciliation. 
This is not a recipe for rebuilding a country. It is the recipe for chaos. And so, this is where I want to end this first part of the podcast. Remember, to understand Haiti in the last 60 years, you must know these three men, Papa Doc, Baby Doc, and Aristide. And the back and forth between these two forces lights a fuse that cannot be put out. At this point in our story, Aristide is out of power, but the forces have been unleashed. Gangs are starting to rise to realize their power, and guns, guns, and more guns are coming into the country. (laughs) 